You know something is wrong. You can see it all around you. You're wondering how things got to this point. Good is called evil and evil is called good. You want to truly know why we got to the brink of the abyss. You can't just be told. You must see it for yourself. I'm Scipio Eruditus, and this is Dispatches from Reality. Hello, hello, my dispatchers, my listeners. I am your author, your narrator, your host, Scipio Eruditus, and today's episode is a continuation of a series, one of my, really one of my favorite series to write and to explore. This was, you know, one that you are starting to see more and more now, but when I was first exploring this and I brought these, uh, you know, this idea up to some of my families and friends, uh, this was, this was the one where they were like, okay, I think you might've lost it. (laughs) Right. Uh, the idea that, you know, not just one, but multiple attacks, the size of Hiroshima and Nagasaki could be pulled off here is just astounding really astounding to comprehend, to conceive the level of coordination and the amount of lies uh, that it would take. But as we will explore in today's essay, part two of that uh, Coincidence Zone Atomic Edition series, uh, we are going to see, you know, this is one of the articles, right, where if you're not subscribing, if you're just a listener, you're you're really missing out here, you know, Uh, because this article is jam-packed with a ton of pictures, very relevant uh, to the topic at hand. And so, you know, in some of these essays, that you know, they're multimedia affairs, there's videos attached, there's, you know, there's books, uh, hyperlinks to uh, all the sourcing, and just uh, really a wealth of information. So, <laughs> yeah, excuse me if you hear my rooster in the background there. <laughs> and so, this is something that's just very Um, you know, you're missing out, you're missing out on an aspect of this stuff if you're only a listener. So definitely get over there, check the show notes, uh, for all the links to Dispatches from Reality over at Substack. So, and as always, like, subscribe, five stars, all that good stuff. All right. I think we got all the self-promotion out of the way. (laughs) Now back to the topic at hand here. We have, uh, just a really an astounding level of coordination and i mean there are so many anomalies that there there is not a major claim that actually holds up to scrutiny really it's oh man yeah he's really going at it this morning huh (laughs) so there's not one major claim that really holds up to scrutiny it's quite shocking uh when you look at the the medical evidence the medical literature which we're going to get into and discuss more so today. Um, Yeah, it's (laughs) just one of the most fantastical lies that has ever been perpetrated against humanity, and that's really saying something, Uh, because there's been uh, quite a number of them. So, the other big aspect of these, these mass rituals is not just 
the you know the lying aspect right and the manipulation of the populace to get you know these kind of base instincts and uh and goals accomplished um the other major aspect is the esoteric and spiritual side and so for that reason this essay we'll see it uh, you know again a lot of exploration of that concept and of that topic because in the days and the you know some of the <laughs> even some of the the symbology within the survivors of victims i mean there's just layer upon layer upon layer of esoteric uh subtext woven into this attack like so many others and so you know as i've discussed in my writings and is uh kind of a major theme of my writings uh is this the spiritual side of all of these things something that you know for far too long we have discounted and our enemies have not you know, our enemies continue to operate under the assumption that the spiritual realm is real. And that should tell you something. That should be, uh, that should be sending off huge warning flags for those who are, you know, still somewhat dubious of the idea that something like this could even make a difference. Well, they believe it to be true. Now, whether it actually does what they're advertising, you know, in totality, that's up for debate. But the very re real, excuse me, spiritual elements at play here, that cannot be denied. And so, for a variety of reasons, these devotionary symbols and invocations are woven into these events, right? What Aleister Crowley calls the dramatic ritual. This is the highest level of ritual magic, the most potent, the most powerful, according to you know, some of the most storied occultists uh, that we have access to. So the more people that are drawn to the ritual, the greater the energy that's harnessed, and even more so if they are unwitting participants in the ritual itself, right? And this becomes incredibly easy to do with social media and TV and Facebook and, you know, TikToks and you name it. All of these programs, these apps, these websites, we all now get to play our part <laughs> in these little occult dramas. We get to perpetuate their narrative or someone else's narrative. It's truly, truly diabolical. And the continued, very specific patterns here, I mean, we are seeing an amount of repetition that is just, again, the series is called The Coincidence Zone for a reason. This is, if you want to chalk this stuff up over and over and over again to mere coincidence, right? You can do so. You can do so. It's just, for me, once you have identified dates of ritual significance, numbers of ritual significance, once you see themes and numbers towards specific gods or goddesses and then symbols to those gods and goddesses and you see them again and again and again very specific invocations on dates of ritual significance typically also so associated with uh astrological significance as well so yeah just a big coincidence right that all the planets are named after pagan gods <laughs> planets quote unquote yeah we won't even get into that one <laughs> i'll let that one lie but regardless 
this is a pattern that you can see repeated over and over and over again. And so, yeah, the, you know, this is the just one of the big ones, though. One of the big ones. And the amount of work that has gone into this one is astounding. So, the further research section for uh, part two here of the Atomic Edition, um, we have some repeats from before. Uh, Hiroshima Revisited by Dr. Michael Palmer and Death Object by Dr. Akio Nakatani. Uh, I can't recommend them highly enough. They're where a huge chunk of the information uh, was originally sourced from, right? And then gone on verified. But uh, these, uh, you know, a good deal of this information was brought forth uh, first by these two gentlemen. And it's Really, what else can be said? You know, the books, uh, if you want to hear more about them, I talk about them in part one, but incredible, incredible books. Can't recommend them enough. And then next up, we have a pair of books here, similar topics. I'm going to go over them uh, together here. So the first one, we have Children of the Atomic Bomb, an American physician's memoir of Nagasaki, Hiroshima, and the Marshall Islands by James N. Yamazaki with Louis B. Fleming. And then secondly, we have Children of Hiroshima by the Committee for the Children of Hiroshima. And so both of these books, from a first-hand perspective, you know, not only from physicians, but the physicians interviewing uh, you know, survivors of these attacks, it is a very, very, I mean, it's just a very, very interesting book, regardless of your view on the authenticity of nuclear weapons or that whole narrative. Even if you, you know, remain unconvinced and you haven't seen enough evidence yet, which, you know, <laughs> just wait for it. But uh, if you're still eh, not quite sold yet, as it were, regardless, these books are very interesting in that you get to see, I mean, accounts and tales and stories that just don't really match up with the the mainstream narratives on these weapons. And it's one of the biggest ones which we'll discuss in uh, part two here, and which Dr. Palmer goes into in depth in his book, is the phenomenon of the nuclear gas, right? The atom gas. And now this is something that's talked about quite prolifically in these two books, and is something that if you go to Japan um, and you talk to a survivor, I mean, or someone that was around during that time period, this is a pretty established part of the storyline for the attacks in Japan, right? I mean, they needed a they needed a military dictatorship to stop this information from disseminating amongst the world. And so we have been our the information has been isolated for a very long time. And now once some of this information is leaking out and with the, you know, the internet, right, the ease of getting access to this, to this information is, you know, it's never been more accessible. And so you can go and you can look at the actual receipts, right? You can see what these people were saying, uh, the survivors and the children of these attacks. And the talk of the atom gas, what, you know, Dr. Palmer believes and what, you know, I agree after looking at the evidence is... Uh, Almost certainly, the aftermath and after effects of napalm gas, uh, or mustard gas, excuse me, and napalm. There is so much talk of this phenomenon, so much talk of this. So, 
This is something in the literature you'll see here that it's just kind of hard to reconcile with what we have been told in America about the atom bombs and how it works, right? So this phenomenon of the atom gas uh, and talked about quite frequently by the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, a very, very important piece to solving this puzzle. And then next up here, we have uh, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare by Michael A. Hoffman II. Uh, I have talked about some of Mr. Hoffman's work before. Uh, big fan of his uh, historical look and his, uh, you know, his look at occult warfare and psychological warfare. And he has done a um, really a, a very similar approach to what I'm trying to do with, uh, you know, this publication here is a, a taking a look at these matters from an academic lens and a serious lens. And uh, the evidence in favor of it is just, you know, it's really hard to deny, right? Once you actually appraise yourself of the situation and you look at the evidence, I mean, in a critical lens, in a critical light, I mean, it gets to a point, right, where it's like, hey, how many times can I say it's just a big coincidence that we're seeing rituals with certain symbols repeated over and over again on dates of ritual significance and occult significance? So, not going to beat that one to death because I think if you are listening to a show like this, you're at least capable of acknowledging that there is an amount of circumstances that is no longer circumstances. It is a very intentional plan. And uh, like the good Sherlock Holmes says, once you have removed all other possibilities, all you are left with, no matter how outrageous is, uh, the truth here. And yes, it's getting harder and harder to deny that fact. And then next up here, we have a... Uh, very good essay by Miles w. w. Mathis uh, called The Nuclear Hoax. Um, you know, Mr. Mathis, an interesting character. I'm kind of torn on him. I, I, I like a good deal of his work, and a lot of his sourcing is top-notch, but the, some of the conclusions, uh, you know, I think are a stretch. But, I'm, yeah, I, I'm torn on him. I've, I've seen some work that, you know, everyone's someone's controlled opposition. You know, I've, I've had people call me a, luciferian and you know my comment section before so i think uh if you're writing about anything controversial uh, you're gonna have people throwing stones so i don't uh the jury's still out for me on mr mathis uh but the essay is top notch and explores a lot of the same uh, angles and particularly in regards to the symbology and other uh, aspects of this day. And then next up, we have a pair of videos. We have Hiroshima Nagasaki by uh, Unknown. And then we have the myth of the nuclear disaster, Harrisburg, Chernobyl, and Fukushima by the University of Birmingham. And so these videos both exploring uh, kind of the aftermath of the attacks uh, and particularly in regards to the nuclear fallout, uh, quote-unquote, what we've been told is nuclear fallout, what is being ascribed to nuclear fallout. And you can see, I mean, as the, uh, the second video goes through uh, by the University of Birmingham, 
you look at so many of these attacks, you look at so many of these huge nuclear events, let's call them, the disasters, right? Uh, we have been sold this idea that the land is uninhabitable forever, that there will be all sorts of mutations, that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And yet you go and you look, as we you know, discussed in, in part one more extensively, uh, that's just not the case in these places. You know, Hiroshima, fine. No long-term, no long-term health problems. Same thing for Nagasaki. You would expect to see all sorts of long-term health problems. Four areas irradiated in the manner that we are, have been told that they were irradiated in. And so you can see the evidence, once again, the physical evidence does not match up with the claims. Right? And so, what we explore on this channel, this you know, publication extensively, what I, you know, just as a, as a student of history and a lover of history, I like to see the source documents and I like to, I like to see the receipts, you know? I mean, what proof do we actually have for some of this? And it's, once you, once you start scratching, once you start digging at some of these, you know, some of these roots here, you start pulling on some of these threads, <laughs> man, you'll be it never ceases to amaze me some of the interesting uh, the interesting intellectual rabbit holes that one will travel down i definitely never thought there would be the day where not only would i consider this a very real i mean the most likely possibility of what's been you know what's been done here right none of us can say definitively or you know to it's only to a certain degree of certitude but that's true of you know a lot more historical events than one would imagine. So, yeah, very, a very, very interesting topic. And it's, you know, I didn't plan on doing it this way, but also somewhat lines up here with the, you know, uh, just recently passing the 80th anniversary of, of Pearl Harbor. An attack that, you know, a day that will live in infamy, that does and continues to live in infamy. A day that really, it's hard to look back on it now, and this is one of the most pivotal moments in American history, without a doubt, right? Uh, I think Sumter, Fort Sumter, the most pivotal false flag in American history, and then I think it's hard to argue, secondly, is Pearl Harbor. So, we look at the aftermath of that day. We look at how much the world has changed, how much it's been impacted by the, the aftermath of that very intentional attack. Very intentional attack a, uh, that was allowed to happen. And so this is uh, something that if you're interested in exploring more, I've written about and you know, need to narrate that series soon here, uh, the Frankenstein formula. Going through the history of false flags in America. I mean, truly a tradition uh, a very storied tradition, unfortunately, in the annals of American history, uh, in that Pearl Harbor is one of those where I mean we have we have the military-industrial complex. Truly, the you know I can't say the birth because we had been fighting wars for this reason and in this fashion for a very long time, but you know the metastasizing, as it were. When they, when they took over and truly 
cemented their stranglehold upon the the body politic. It was the point of no return. It was the event horizon, as it were. And we look back on that day, and it is it's something that only now, after it's been embedded in people's minds and they have an emotional attachment to this idea, right? I mean, really, that's the biggest hurdle for so many people when it's talking, when retreading through American history and looking at some of this stuff, right? Is that the, the myth of the righteous and the virtuous American war? I mean, it is precisely that a myth. And it's a very alluring one. It's a very seductive one. You know, it, it plays to so much of our, our vain emotions and, <laughs> and they've, They've surely got our predictions down to a T, and yep, over and over and over again, we see the playbook executed to perfection, and today's reading is just another perfect, perfect example of that principle in action. So without further ado, my... June 20th, 2023 article, The Coincidence Zone, Atomic Edition, Part 2. Quote, There are more things likely to frighten us than there are to crush us. We suffer more often in imagination than in reality. Seneca the Younger. End quote. Before we discuss the irregularities the impossibilities, the farcical and the fallacious, we should first establish the orthodox or mainstream narrative on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Therein lies a significant challenge, as there is an extraordinary amount of variance in the figures cited for death tolls, destruction, and explosive force. And generally, the destructive capabilities vary anywhere from 10 to 50%, based upon the source, and they go something like this. One chunk of plutonium was smashed into another chunk of plutonium, resulting in, quote, everything in a two-mile radius of the explosion's epicenter was vaporized, instantly incinerated or turned into vapor, from the Manhattan Project, the making of the atomic bomb. The explosion immediately killed an estimated 80,000 people, and it exploded 2,000 feet above Hiroshima in a blast equal to 12 to 15,000 tons of TNT destroying five square miles of the city, from history.com. And the numerous small fires that erupted simultaneously all around the city soon merged into one large firestorm, creating extremely strong winds that blew towards the center of the fire. The firestorm eventually engulfed 4.4 square miles of the city, killing anyone who had not escaped in the first minutes after the attack, from the U.S. Department of Energy. End quote. I have also seen 20,000 to 25,000 tons listed as the explosive power of the bomb, so there is a high level of variance within that figure in particular. Go figure. Within a quarter of a mile of ground zero, highly lethal radioisotopes should have bathed all of the victims in a dosage guaranteed to spell instant death. Within a mile, the air pressure and winds exceed Category 5 hurricanes by several factors of magnitude. The air pressure alone 
should have totally demolished even concrete buildings, resulting in over 98% fatalities. Within five miles, every building should have been utterly destroyed. The nuclear weapons are supposedly tools capable of instantly annihilating and wiping all matter from the face of the earth. To reiterate, about 60 to 80,000 people are killed instantly for miles. Physical substances are incinerated in a heat wave over 10 million degrees Celsius, hotter even than the sun, with radioactive fallout spread throughout the city. The salient problem for the narrative peddlers is that the physical evidence entirely contradicts the truly outlandish claims cited above. These are not cherry-picked quotes or statistics either. Indeed, I was quite generous by choosing those sources, as some of the more cartoonish nuke propaganda reads like a cheesy sci-fi novel. Remember these so-called facts, quote-unquote, and internalize their descriptions as we embark on our intellectual journey through the photographic and medical evidence. Quote, It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. President Harry S. Truman, 33rd Degree Freemason. End quote. The clear and repeated invocations to the pagan gods of multiple pantheons solidify this event not just as a false flag, but more importantly, as a mass ritual. Just hours before the attack on Hiroshima, its occult planners would have surely held ceremonies and ritual sacrifices on behalf of their solar god. August 5th is a most auspicious date within the mystery religion, as it coincides with the heliacal rising of Sirius. Indeed, the Egyptian calendar is almost entirely based upon the rising times of this star. Masons deeply revere this star, or its esoteric symbolism, as Albert Pike, 33rd degree Freemason, states in Morals and Dogma, quote, The ancient astronomers saw all the great symbols of masonry in the stars. Sirius glitters in our lodges as the blazing stars. End quote. Masons also refer to Sirius as the Argentinium Astrum, with a silver star. Both the Statue of Liberty in 1884 and the Twin Towers in 1968, 33 years before their destruction, were dedicated in a Masonic ceremonies on August 5th. Aleister Crowley's Occult Order, AA, was named in honor of this star, a star which he believed to be the dwelling place of Lucifer's demonic court. August 5th of that year would also be the date of a Masik Shivratri, a symbolic day of fasting and praise to the Hindu god Shiva, whose symbolism we have already seen throughout this mass ritual in part one of this essay. On the morning of August 6th, 66 bombers were dispatched to bomb the city of Imabari. Now why would such a conspicuously numbered bombing fleet be dispatched to a city that had been leveled just weeks earlier in two separate firebombing raids. It is highly likely that this is our mystery fleet responsible for the firebombing of Hiroshima. The bombs were dropped at heights well above visual identification range, making it impossible for those on the ground to know whether it was one plane or a fleet of them. The timing of the bombing of Hiroshima, 815, also has massive symbolic significance. In Kabbalah, 8 
is symbolic of an entity that is one step above the natural order, higher than nature and its limitations. In Chaldean, a.k.a. Babylonian numerology, 15 corresponds to the mysterious, the powers of creation, of magic, and the deeply hidden occult forces of the Ethereum. In Terot, the 15th major arcana is the Devil card, once again making it abundantly clear the deity that these dark sorcerers are trying to invoke. Furthermore, August 6, 1945, was the 30th of Ipip on the Egyptian calendar. In antiquity, the festival of Hathor, the daughter of Ra and a solar deity herself, would be celebrated on that day. Hathor was most commonly worshipped as a fertility goddess, but she was also placated in this festival in order that her bloodthirsty tendencies would be sated. This would have included mass sexual rituals, i.e. orgies, as well as sacrifices. In her unholy rage against the enemies of Ra, she would trample and flatten her foes underfoot, expressing distinct elements of Sekhmet, the goddess of war. In Egyptian mythology, this role-switching is quite common, and usurpation of other deities' roles was as simple as exhibiting their characteristics, in this case, Sekhmet's warlike demeanor. Pictured is Hiroshima before the attack from the National Archives, and then we have three pictures of Hiroshima after the attack, also from the National Archives. There is a significant amount of buildings and matter that is unvaporized. And then we also have an excerpt from Hiroshima Revisited by Dr. Michael Palmer. It is a photograph of downtown Hiroshima taken by Alexander P. D. Seversky during his visit in early September of 1945. The original figure caption reads as follows. A cluster of concrete office buildings standing erect and structurally intact amidst the ashes of the surrounding wooden houses, near Ground Zero. Then lastly, we have the first aerial photo of the bombing of Hiroshima taken just minutes after the blast by John McLaughlin. Note the lack of damage within the outer blast radius zone, below four miles, which should have been instantly demolished from the blast wave. On August 9th, Nagasaki, the most populated Christian city in Japan at that time, was destroyed via hellfire. Consequently, Hiroshima's Christian population was quite extensive as well. The fat man was dropped at 11.02 a.m., just 500 meters from the Immaculate Conception Cathedral. It is no accident that this church in this city was targeted for such an attack, despite avoiding the destruction most of Japan's cities had suffered. Nagasaki was called the Rome of the East and was considered the capital of Japanese Catholicism. Christians of Nagasaki had been mercilessly persecuted by their rulers for centuries. After the ban on Christianity was lifted in 1895, Exiled Christians then returned and bought the very land where the local government held their interrogations of Christ's flock. We see yet more invocations to the sun god and the date of this attack, as August 9th was the date of the Roman festival for Sol Indiges. Sol, the Roman god of the personified sun, would have been celebrated with public sacrifices. On this August 9th, the Christians of Nagasaki were that sacrifice. Picture there is two pictures of Nagasaki before the attack, 
And then below, six pictures of Nagasaki after the attack. Again, there is a great deal of buildings still standing. I leave it to the victims of this horrific attack to best explain the horror of a nuclear bombardment. Quote, There was a strong wind that night, and as I came out of the shelter, all I could see around us was fire, she said, adding that burning clothing to Tommy mats and debris were blowing down the road, and it looked like a flowing river of fire. I remember seeing other families, like us, holding hands and running through the fires, she recollected. I saw a baby on fire on a mother's back. I saw children on fire, but they were still running. I saw people catch fire when they fell onto the road because it was so hot. End quote. Oh, wait, excuse me. That's an eyewitness account of the firebombing of Tokyo. Let me try this again. Quote, we did not recognize our street anymore. Fire. Only fire. Wherever we looked. Our fourth floor did not exist anymore. The broken remains of our house were burning. On the streets there were burning vehicles and carts with refugees. People, horses, all of them screaming and shouting in fear of death. I saw hurt women, children, old people, searching away through the ruins and flames. End quote. Oh, whoops, that's from Dresden. So easy to mix up these testimonies when they're all describing essentially the same event. Here is an actual account of a Hiroshima victim. Quote, Since Hiroshima was completely enveloped in flames, we felt terribly hot and could not breathe well at all. After a while, a whirlpool of fire approached us from the south. It was like a big tornado of fire spreading over the full width of the street. Whenever the fire touched, Wherever the fire touched, it burned. It burned my ear and leg. I didn't realize that I had burned myself at that moment, but I noticed it later. End quote. And the wall of fire enveloping their homes in a burning landscape reminiscent of hell is a common motif amongst the victims of the firebombing terror campaigns. The pictures of Ground Zero and Hiroshima alone severely damages the alleged destructive capabilities of the bomb, quote-unquote. Japanese architecture, even in their most populated cities, was still largely medieval in its construction. Japanese houses were primarily constructed with wood, with rice paper for walls. The concrete architecture of Dresden largely withstood the napalm bombardment of the Allied forces, as we see in the Japanese cities firebombed as well just in much smaller quantities. That is, unless the Japanese somehow secretly invented the strongest substance known to mankind, capable of withstanding millions of degrees and hundreds of miles per hour winds. They must have lost the how-to manual for their super concrete in the blast or something. All levity aside, as you can see below, Tokyo looks nearly identical to the aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We have three pictures of the aftermath of the firebombing of Tokyo, with nearly identical damage to that scene in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then pictured are three images from the firebombing of Dresden. Perhaps the most compelling testimonial comes from an American pilot and lifelong advocate of strategic air power, Major Alexander P. de Seversky. If anyone was uniquely qualified to inspect the site, and compare their destruction to that of traditional terror bombing, it was Major Disseversky. He was among the first Americans to enter Hiroshima in early September, mere weeks after the surrender of Japan. 
He detailed his visit in a 1946 issue of Reader's Digest. Quote, After visiting the major areas of the Pacific, I arrived in Japan. I began the study to which I had been assigned by making an aerial tour of the islands of Honshu and Kyushu, which encompasses the main portion of industrial Japan. I flew over Tokyo, Yokohama, Yokosuku, Nagoya, Osaka, Kobe, Akashi, and dozens of other towns and cities which had been subject to intensive air attacks. Some of these towns are so close together that they seem almost continuous industrial sites. All of these areas of annihilation presented approximately the same visual pattern. The smaller towns were totally burned out. Seen from above, the prevailing color was pinkish, the effect produced by the piles of ashes and rubble mixed with rusted metal. Similar pinkish carpets were spread out in the larger cities, except that among them stood large and small modern concrete buildings and factory structure, unscathed bridges, and other objects that had withstood the impact. Many of the buildings, of course, were gutted by fire, but this was not apparent from the air. I was keyed up for my first view of an atom bomb city, prepared for the radically new sights suggested by the exciting descriptions I had read and heard. But to my utter astonishment, Hiroshima from the air looked exactly like all the other burned-out cities I had observed. There was a familiar pink blot, about two miles in diameter. It was dotted with shard trees and telephone poles. Only one of the city's twenty bridges was downed. Hiroshima's clusters of modern buildings in the downtown section stood upright. It was obvious that the blast could not have been so powerful as we had been led to believe. It was extensive blast, rather than intensive. I had heard of buildings instantly consumed by unprecedented heat. Yet here, I saw the buildings structurally intact, and what is more, topped by undamaged flagpoles, lightning rods, painted railings, air raid precaution signs, and other comparatively fragile objects. At the T-Bridge, the aiming point for the atomic bomb, I looked for the bald spot, where everything presumably had been vaporized in the twinkling of an eye. It wasn't there, or anywhere else. I could find no traces of unusual phenomenon. What I did see was in substance a replica of Yokohama or Osaka, or the Tokyo suburbs. The familiar residue of an area of wood and brick houses raised by uncontrollable fire. Everywhere I saw the trunks of charred and leafless trees, burned and unburned chunks of wood. The fire had been intense enough to bend and twist steel girders and to melt glass until it ran like lava, just as in other Japanese cities. The concrete buildings nearest to the center of explosion, some only a few blocks from the heart of the atom blast, showed no structural damage. Even cornices, canopies, and delicate exterior decorations were intact. Window glass was shattered, of course, but single panel frames held firm. Only window frames of two or more panels were bent and buckled. The blast impact, therefore, could not have been unusual. End quote. This testimony was met with harsh criticism in the West, despite the photographic evidence entirely validating Major Disaversky. However, the Major's statements 
echo those made by several high-ranking Japanese officers in the immediate aftermath of the attacks, which we will further discuss in Part 3. Dissident Japanese voices were cracked down on harshly after the occupation, and severe speech restrictions prevented anything but government-approved narratives from escaping the country. It is simply an incontrovertible fact that no evidence of enriched 235U exists in the fallout of either city. They should have been the primary nuclear isotope created, and yet it could not be found in measurable quantities after the alleged detonation. 137C, created by the Hiroshima bomb, are measured in levels three times higher than that which should have been released by its payload. Plutonium samples in the soil are also incompatible with a uranium-based detonation. Radiation readings from the first week after the attack clearly refute the idea of a nuclear blast, instead point towards a deliberate spreading of nuclear waste. There are numerous victims whose mere existence disproves the possibility that a nuclear device was detonated over either Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Dr. J.D. Keller noted that one of his patients survived despite being just 50 meters from the hypo center of the blast. Another victim was just 300 meters from the blast, living to tell her harrowing tale well into the 21st century. Four priests were 1,280 meters from ground zero, and they too managed to survive. Either these people are secretly superhumans on par with the Hulk, or no nukes were used. There are simply no other options. Preliminary mortality data collected by American doctors likewise show that those outdoors who were closer to the central blast survived at a higher rate than those indoors. This curious pattern does not conform with a nuclear blast, but it would conform with mustard gas being used, as homes would have trapped the deadly gas within them. The top three pictures seen here are smoke plumes from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and below them are three pyrocumulus clouds. These pictures are almost identical. Below that, we have an alleged nuclear blast on the left and a pyrocumulus cloud after wildfire. The telltale mushroom cloud, touted as prima facie evidence of the particularly unique destructive capability of the bomb, quote-unquote, is anything but. The pictures shown above clearly demonstrate that clouds of this shape and size are not unique to nukes, but a naturally occurring cloud formation in the aftermath of large fires. Even the ring around the cloud can be seen replicated in pyrocumulus clouds. There is not a single unique aspect of mushroom clouds that differentiate them from pyrocumulus clouds, as the nearly identical photographs make demonstrably clear. Here we have four pictures of nuclear shadows. Hot enough to vaporize humans, but not hot enough to vaporize wood? Perhaps the most outlandish claim made by proponents of the nuclear bomb theory is that of atomic shadows. These artifacts are allegedly created when the object in front of them is incinerated, while the victim's shadow prevents the bleaching effect of the bomb's light from impacting the object in said shadow. Do I even need to expound on this patently ridiculous notion? How is the heat wave hot enough to vaporize bone over 2700 Fahrenheit? yet not hot enough to burn even wood at 540 Fahrenheit. If it's simply light bleaching the surrounding area, 
Why is the bridge's shadow lighter? See the top left picture. Truly farcical stuff. Quote, The unleashed power of the atom has changed everything except our thinking. Thus, we are drifting toward catastrophe beyond conception. We shall require a substantially new manner of thinking if mankind is to survive. Albert Einstein. End quote. First discovered in 1822, sulfur mustard is a toxin first synthesized in large quantities during the end of World War I. Despite not being deployed until 1917, it would account for more fatalities than all other chemical weapons combined. It is a highly lethal, carcinogenic, and mutagenic compound. Due to the unique chemical properties of the sulfur molecule, its effects on DNA in particular, manifest themselves in similar ways to ionizing radiation. This includes leukemia, bone marrow damage, and cancer, the primary long-term wounds of the victims of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Dr. Palmer sums up the major issue with the radiation hypothesis in Chapter 8 of his book. Quote, There is a substantial number of survivors who were exposed near the hypocenter, either in the open or protected only by wooden houses. There are victims of acute radiation sickness at distances which should have been safe. In Hiroshima, multiple cases of acute radiation sickness, some with lethal outcome, were recorded among those who were not in the city during the bombing, but entered it shortly afterwards. In survivors, a history of acute radiation sickness correlates very poorly with official radiation dose estimates. One-third of the survivors in the highest dose group did not report even a single characteristic symptom of acute radiation syndrome. From Hiroshima Revisited, end quote. Indeed, most of the early fatalities contributed to radiation sickness were due to lung failure, which also happens to be the primary cause of death for mustard gas. The fact that there are any survivors at all within the hypocenter of the blast thoroughly disproves the myth of a nuclear blast at Hiroshima in Nagasaki. We covered some of those survivors above, and their long lives after the blast simply vaporize the argument that nukes were dropped on Japan. The medical literature continues to bear this out to this day. In 1990, a 40-year study was published by John Boyce of the National Cancer Institute. Mr. Boyce stated that, quote, ionizing radiation is known to cause irritable mutations in many species of plants and animals. But intense study of 70,000 offspring of atomic bomb survivors has failed to identify an increase in congenital abnormalities, cancer, chromosome aberrations, or mutational blood protein changes. End quote. In 2016, the scientific journal Genetics published a study of the survivors and their children that found the following quote, It is generally thought that abnormal births, malformations, and extensive mutations are common among the children of irradiated survivors, when in fact, the follow-up of 77,000 such children, excluding children irradiated in utero, fails so far to show evidence of deleterious effects. End quote. Curiously, skin burns as the only documented exposure carry the highest risk of cancer, a wound pattern that simply cannot be explained through exposure to radiation. However, napalm exposure would account for this seemingly peculiar finding in the medical literature.
Picture it as an excerpt from Hiroshima Revisited by Dr. Michael Palmer. Note the black pockets of affected cornea tissue in both pictographs. Retinal burns are stunningly absent from all medical studies of the victims of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Pictured as a, a Vietnamese napalm victim and a napalm victim called Kim Phuc, the napalm girl. Compare those images with the alleged flash burns of Hiroshima victims seen below. In addition, we have another excerpt from Hiroshima Revisited by Dr. Michael Palmer. Skin lesions in Hiroshima bombing victims ascribed to flash burn. Picture A, a general arrhythmia and local hyperpigmentation of exposed skin in a man exposed at 2.4 kilometers from the hypocenter, photographed on October 11, 1945. Taken from Otterson and Warren. B and C are keloids, or hypertrophic scar tissue, on two patients exposed at 1.3 and 1.7 kilometers, respectively, from the hypocenter, taken from Block and Suzuki. General Crawford F. Sams was the Chief of Public Health and Welfare, Section of the General Headquarters, Supreme Allied Powers, from October 2, 1945, until June of 1951. As the chief medical officer overseeing the aftermath and cleanup of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, his testimony provides a unique window into the mindset of those tasked with chronicling the effects of nuclear weapons. Quote, I mentioned deterrence against war. There was a letter brought over in which the president was looking for a new deterrent against a future war because air power had failed. You know, if you have another war, air power will destroy civilization. And it failed because it hadn't even brought Germany to its knees. A strategic bomb survey over there showed that military production had increased, actually, during our bombings. So the object of letter of instruction was, you will play up the devastating effect of the atom bomb. I was the one who set the deadline. Anybody who had been in Hiroshima and died within six months, whether they got run over by a bicycle or whatnot, would be credited to the atomic bomb most of the casualties occurred from thermal readings. The atomic bomb went off, and that city had about 250,000 people in it. In other words, you had a high-density population exposed. When the bomb went off, about 2,000 people out of 250,000 got killed by blast, by thermal radiation, or by intense X-ray gamma radiation. Then what happened is like an earthquake. The blast knocked down houses, hibachis had turned over and started fires. When you have an earthquake or an atomic bomb, you start fires and then people are trapped in the buildings. And again, by endless interviews, where were you? Where was your great uncle? Where was your grandma when this occurred? We built up the evidence to show on a cookie-cutter basis that it took about 36 hours for about two-thirds of that town to burn. You see, it wasn't bing, like the publicity here said. A bomb went off and a city disappeared. They're talking about after that. One bomb and away goes Chicago, you know? All you've got to do is look in Life magazine and whatnot back in 45, 46, and so on. What I'm trying to do is show how it's like in the war with one B-17. Well, you have to keep your feet on the ground. As near as we could figure then, about 21,000 people died in 36 hours as a result of being trapped and burned, and so on. It's like those who died in the 23 earthquake and subsequent fire. 
Then, as I say, I set the six-month deadline for anybody who had been there, even though they went away and so on, to put a deadline on deaths from delayed radiation effects. End quote. Inflating the numbers to make their weapons seem more deadly than it actually is. Now, where have we heard that before? Quote, A world without nuclear weapons would be less stable and more dangerous for all of us. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. End quote. What I've detailed above is simply a fraction of the evidence available that utterly destroys the cunningly devised ruse of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I've only used their words. I've only used their pictures. I've only cited their medical studies in their stories. That their patently outrageous claims, such as nuclear fire being hotter than the sun, and that their evidence do not match up, is blatantly obvious. I mean, seriously. Nuclear shadows on wooden surfaces? How does anyone fall for this crap? These uncomfortable realities naturally beg several questions. How could such a gross deception be perpetrated against the entire world? Does that successful deception then not imply a worldwide network of operatives working in concert to forward their agenda? Indeed, both of these questions are valid and extraordinarily important to understand how and why Japan would go along with such a blatant farce. Long before H.G. Wells ever dreamed up his atom bomb, the same forces that had subverted America from within had infiltrated and subverted Japan, which will be the primary focus of the final part of this essay. The apocalyptic stories that we have been sold in regards to the destructiveness of nuclear weapons are exactly that. Stories. The regime's storybooks say that we invented these bombs because we had to beat the dastardly Nazis to it. Just like we were experimenting on bioweapons in China in order to fight Chinese bioweapons? Precisely like the COVID PSYOP, inflated death tolls were used to scare an unwitting worldwide populace into compliance. Natural phenomenon were turned into the symptoms of a novel quote-unquote weapon capable of wiping out a vast swaths of humanity. Poison was dispensed from the skies and then used as the impetus to enslave yet another country. That is, unless you sacrifice yet more treasure and more blood and another unending and unwinnable war. The second longest forever war, behind only the war on germs, isn't the war on drugs or the war on terror. It is the war on nukes. Quote, As long as they killed people with conventional rather than nuclear weapons, they were praised as humanitarian statesmen. As long as they did not use nuclear weapons, it appeared nobody was going to give the right name to all the killing that had been going on since the end of the Second World War, which was surely World War III. Kurt Vonnegut. End quote. <laughs> 